Yes, hello everyone, and welcome back to the None But the Brave podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy Flynn McLean. Flynn, what's been happening? Uh, Philadelphia '99, man, that was a great way to start off the holiday weekend. So that's it. Your entire weekend was just Philadelphia '99. <laughs> well, considering I really can't do much else, uh, I did listen to it quite a bit. I actually did listen to it too, and it's a it's a really good one. Yes, it was a, it was a sixth night. It was the sixth and final night of the stand. I know people were really hoping to get the, the 924 show that had all the all the greeting stuff and the fever. But the final night, you know, we talked about in the reunion episode, this was really an epic show. And it, it really was between the New York City Serenade, Jungle Land, and the first incident in 19 years to open the show. was That's something else right there. Yeah, totally. As we talked about in the reunion tour episode, I was so bummed to miss this show and missed the incident as the opener. But fortunately, I did see incident a month later in Los Angeles. And of course, that show is also an archive release. But looking at this one, as I was listening to it over the weekend, the part that really captured me was the Streets of Philadelphia and New York City serenade combo. And Bruce's speech before Streets of Philadelphia was incredibly powerful. And I guess I'm going to use a word for the second episode in a row. It was really prescient in the way he spoke about racial justice and equality and equal opportunity. He said it was in support of an organization, the Kensington Welfare Project Union in Philadelphia. And I just thought his words were incredibly eloquent there. Well, yes, uh, he's very good at that. And he was, he's been very good at that for a long time. And it was definitely something that, I mean, he, he could come out on stage next week if, if, if he could and say this and say the exact same thing, except for the part about the booming economy, of course. I was wondering if this in part led to them picking the show. It seems so relevant to what's going on now in the country that it really stood out as being pretty amazing if it was just a coincidence. And I, I don't know. That's a, that's a very good question. And that we were due for a reunion show, I think. I, I think it's been since October, since since that L.A. 99 show was released. So so we were kind of due. Uh, and this is certainly a strong show all around. I mean, we, we needed one from that from that Philadelphia stand anyway. I'm glad they picked this one. You know, we all wish they could have had they could have released 924. But as Eric pointed out in his notes, they don't have that one in multi-track. Yeah, unfortunately, having missed both those shows, 924, I know from everything that you guys said and we talked about in the Reunion Tour episode, really a magical night. And this one's pretty damn good, too, I have to say. And and listening to it, it reminds you how great they were on the Reunion Tour. As we always say, the regulars, when, when those are on point, the five-pack, Youngstown, Murder, Inc., Badlands, out in the street, 10th Avenue, just incredible listen here. And... And Al Schiller did a good job here, too. You, you know, I always say that I like a little bit more a lively audience, and especially here on Atlantic City. And We talked about how 7-1, I felt that he didn't really get the end there with the crowd. Here he got it. It did sound great. It did sound like there was there was something happening. You know, the magic trick was indeed happening at this show. Uh, I was going to say on a, on a more of a lighter note. During light of day, when they went into you can't sit down, that that was something special too because I, f- I feel like most times where he threw something in there into the middle of light of day, he kind of had they had the drum beat going and they kind of eased into the little bonus song, whether it be Detroit medley or boom boom, but this one it was just boom right into you can't sit down and I thought that was just tremendous. Yeah, that was pretty explosive. I also. Did they always do that big a chunk of My Girl in 10th Avenue? It seemed like it was longer in this show. I don't know if I'm not remembering properly. 
Um, I remember it being pretty extensive during during some shows. I mean, it wasn't an every nighter. Um, obviously, she sang "Rumble Doll" on more than one occasion. Uh, what what struck me though, as I haven't listened to the show in a long time, was he did part of the the other the original Mary's Place in the in the middle of Tenth Avenue, which is the one where um, there's a place right across town. Whenever you're ready, you know those lines. Yeah, he he did a lot on the Rising Tour as part of Mary's Place, but I don't remember him doing it much uh, in '99, 2000, and. Boom, here it is. Yeah, this one's a really good listen. And then you could tell they were just so locked in. It's a show, as I've said before, I wish I was at. And just looking forward in the archive series, I hope on the reunion tour for the next one, they go to the year 2000. Yes, I, I agree with you. And I think it's kind of funny that there, there were four performances of Incident on the tour, and two of them have been released. And only five serenades, and again, two of them have been released. So they seem to be picking the ones where they have one of the great epics in there. Not that well, I'm complaining, I'm just pointing out statistically speaking here. <laughs> well, and as we know, because you're the one who reported it, they only have select shows from select cities in this tour, and it seems like they recorded some of the bigger shows. Well, yes. Uh, obviously, I, they were recording in Philadelphia, not on the night, not on 924, but on 925, and I hope they have something for Boston, because some of those shows were really, really hot as well. Well, what we got from Eric's essay, it seems like if there hadn't been the fact that the 24th was postponed and they had played the shows in order, probably the second to last show would have been recorded at Wachovia. But because they moved arenas, they didn't take that equipment over with them, I guess. Oh, I can see that. Yeah, it was uh, yeah, when they moved it to the Spectrum, which was, what, 100 yards, 250 yards <laughs> uh, due east of the Wachovia Center. Um, and then they moved back the next day. So, yeah, they probably didn't think it was it was worth it to unset everything up or pack everything away and then put everything back together. Unfortunate, uh, a missed opportunity. Yeah, and that's a, definitely a situation where if, if they have any kind of two-track soundboard, just the kind, of a, the kind of thing that we heard coming out of, remember the Dublin 93 soundboard? Yeah. With, with Joe Ely and Jerry Lee Lewis, the the legend has it was is that that's right out of the DAT player at the soundboard, and so if they have something like that for the 924 show, I definitely think it it should be released. I totally agree. And of course, uh, before the archive release on Friday, we did get another Bruce Bruce at the helm of the E Street Radio playing from his home to yours, and this time he was joined by two very special guests, Southside Johnny and and Little Steven, and. It was just fun listening to these guys just talk about the old times and about some of the special moments that they've shared together over the the 50 years or 55 years they've known each other. Oh, my God. These guys should have a regular radio show. Although, let <laughs> me just point out, it is now titled From My Home to Yours. They have tweaked the title. Okay. And then this one, uh, they actually had a they had another theme. They call it Fourth of July, uh, Asbury Park. So it was kind of, uh, they were definitely pointing in that, in this kind of, Asbury vein from the get-go. Yeah, it was a really great listen. There was so much in here to enjoy. And it's funny because, you know, in our last episode, I had said Bruce was doing these very serious shows and he's got something that's a little fun and frivolous. We want to hear it. Well, we got it. So, <laughs> but see, and, it's, and that reminds me of something that Steven said at some of the shows he did uh, was the last year or a couple of years ago about how in the 80s he was always people wanted the party, but he was saying how the, you know, the world's burning and now it's the opposite. The, everyone's acknowledging the world's burning and he just, and he just wants to party. And so this was an hour and over two hours of him basically partying with, with his two of his good buddies. 
I feel like you really got an insight into these guys' relationships with one another, especially I love my favorite part was when they were talking about love on the wrong side of town. <laughs> and here. Bruce was like, did I have something to do with that? And Steve was like, <laughs> you did. That's your ref. Well, it's funny because they, they, they talked about that in one of the holiday shows where they were well, – I remember it was very vivid because Bruce was actually – motioning to the teleprompter just and he was saying oh i had i wrote the riff on this one i wrote i wrote that opening riff so it's funny that that he that he forgot and well that was a long time ago now uh i you know no it was just like a couple years ago right (laughs) but no but you're right yes it's been it's been a while and uh but it was good to hear that story and and to hear them i always kind of assumed that Bruce recorded his parts, and then they he just told the the programmer at E Street Radio just this, which songs to put in, or he would send over the, send over MP3s or something. But this one, it sounded like they were all there listening together at the same time. Yeah, I was trying to figure out that too. Of course, especially in a time of social distancing, did they all go to Bruce's house, or were they in the studio, or were they actually separate somehow? It did really though sound to me like they were in the same room. Now, you and I have both been to East Street Radio and done programming there, and you're right. I mean, we did the intros, and then we told them what we wanted to be programmed, and they cut it together after we left. And I would assume that's uh, how they've been doing Bruce's shows in part. But this one did seem to be totally live. It was. Uh, I wonder if they were all together. I mean, it certainly sounded like it. Well, I mean, to say it the obvious, Bruce has a state-of-the-art studio in his barn, which is where I assume all of his, his episodes have been recorded. And then, then Stephen, he has a recording studio, I'm sure, somewhere in the city. And it wouldn't take much to get to set up Southside with some kind of some kind of high-speed internet line that would basically be like he was live, live with them. So, But but the fact that they were playing music and they, they were actually commenting on it, I think Love on the Wrong Side of Town being a prime, prime example, um, that they seem to be listening to it together. Yes, for sure. And they, then, and then I thought it was funny when um, when Bruce would ju- would play two songs back to back, and in the middle he would jump in and go double header, and go right into the next song. And you know, Bruce, the point of a double header is not to have any interruptions between. <laughs> well, he wanted to let you know it was a double header, Flynn. <laughs> okay, well, I, as if I couldn't figure that out. But yes, Bruce, it was it was good to hear. Really good selections too, and. The other part that I really liked at the end when they were talking about Bruce and Steve recording the two Gary U.S. Bonds albums Mm. uh, that Bruce was unable to be credited, I think was on the second album because what was at the time Columbia Records, they didn't want to allow him to be on on that album. (laughs) <laughs> that's true and they talked about recording uh angeline where where steven had to do the the vocals and but they they didn't talk about jolie blonde and how they they were able to get bruce credited on that one but c'est la vie i think it's great <laughs> well, my favorite part of that was when they were talking about ha- battles with the record companies and bruce was like i didn't have too many of those and steve was like well that was before born in the usa <laughs> yes the born in the usa kid gave him a little bit more pull with the label uh just a, just just a smidgen right yeah so. and that's going to be a perfect segue back into our main topic because the year 1985 a very, very, very big year for Mr. Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> and of course, as you say that, I'm reminded of that uh, that one hit wonder. Was it Bowling for Soup, 1985, Springsteen, Madonna, way before Nirvana? And that's where we find ourselves. 
Oh, okay. I don't think I've ever actually heard that one, but you'll you'll have to play it for me. Okay, I will. And then the video is pretty funny too, even if none of the songs that they parody are from 1985. But we digress again. So when we ended part one of our look at the Born in the USA tour. We stopped in Syracuse, January 27th, 1985, which was where the American tour, at least the initial part of the American tour, came to an end. And I think tonight we can pick up on the very next day, January 28th, 1985, because that was a very big day in music history. Yeah, he flew out to, sounds like he flew out to Los Angeles almost right after the show to be able to participate in the We Are the World recording sessions that took place after the uh what is it? The Academy? Some kind it of. It was the American Music Awards. American Music Awards. They have too many awards shows, and that was even back then. <laughs> but yeah, that was a big deal. I mean, the song was huge in and of itself, and the fact that the some of the biggest rock stars and music stars on the planet were participating certainly certainly garnered a lot of headlines. You know, but it almost didn't happen, and Bruce was actually a big cause of why it did happen, because I was reading in preparation for this, and I didn't even realize this. Esquire had a great article just last month uh, called We Are the World Inside Pop's Music's Most Famous All-Nighter. And Ken Cragen, who was the man behind the We Are the World sessions, he said that he had reached out to Landau and said, this is what we're doing and we'd love to have Bruce come and join us. And at the time, Landau said to him, well, you're planning it for right after the tour ends. He's doing 15 shows in January. He's probably going to be exhausted. And I just don't know if we can make it happen. And then time passed. And a few weeks before those We Are the World sessions were supposed to take place, Cragen says he got a call from Landau and says, OK, Bruce is in. And at that point, they had been struggling to get confirmations that people were going to show up. And as soon as Bruce was in, Cragen tells a story that he went to, he, people started calling him. He stopped having to call people. They were all like, okay, Bruce is in, we're in. Oh, well, see, I, I wouldn't, I would have expected something that had Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie from the get go would, would have more, you know, more allure to, to, to these artists, but it also shows just how big and how how respected Bruce really was at the time. Totally. I mean, Bruce was just, as we're going to get into, this was the year he became, there's really no words to describe how big he was this year. But even then, and Cragen tells another story in this article, which just cracked me up, that everyone's showing up in limos and with their drivers and Bruce, they're at A&M Studios and Bruce walks in through the gates all alone and says to Cragen, that he came from the airport in a rental car. He drove himself, and he was all excited that he got a great parking spot on La Brea, <laughs> which is where A&M Studios were. So all the other artists were, were there, probably with their entourages and stuff, and Bruce wandered in on his own, proud that he got a good parking spot on La Brea. Now, that is an accomplishment, I have to say. Okay, I'm not, not familiar with that area, but it, def it also sounds like Bruce was not the, the target audience for that sign that said, check your egos at the door. Yeah, no. But when they recorded the song, and obviously they made a nice big home video of it, and I have to admit that even 35 years later, when I hear Bruce kick in for the first time in the song, I get goosebumps. It really does. It's pretty powerful. He's His voice is very raspy, as we just said. He had been touring all of January. He just played the, literally the night before in Syracuse. So, But at the same time, that raspiness makes it his own. To put it in perspective, not only did he play the night before, 
he played four shows in five nights, the 23rd, the 24th, the 26th, and the 27th, then flew what must have been pretty much overnight to get from Syracuse to Los Angeles. I, it, pretty damn cool that he did that. And obviously the song is very enduring. Yeah, this song has lasted. And I love the way that Bruce and Ray Charles kind of bounce off each other there at the end of the song. It's as I said, it gave me goosebumps when when Bruce first comes in on the song, but then to hear him and Ray Charles, who I'm sure was a musical hero to him at some point, that's it was amazing. Oh, to have been a fly on the wall during those <laughs> sessions. I mean, well, there was that there was the home video or the video that they released of it, so you can go back and watch it if you want. Now, incredibly, the next appearance Bruce made this year also was in Los Angeles, and that was at the Forum, where, and I, I assume this is partially accurate. I mean, we know that he made an appearance with Prince and Madonna also joined them. Have you ever, is there any footage of that? There's one picture. There's one picture that I've seen that has, that you can see Bruce with his, his very long hair, which was, which is kind of funny considering how short he would keep it later in the year. And he was in his leather jacket and he was, and Prince was playing without a shirt on, of course. And it looked interesting, and I, I, there is a recording of it, but Bruce doesn't take any vocals. I can't even tell if he, if he's playing guitar. So really, the only evidence we have that Bruce actually was there is that you actually, at some point, Prince actually goes, Bruce! But, you know, there's nothing else to substantiate that. Well, that show took place during Grammy week, and Bruce did win one Grammy that year. He won for Dancing the Dark, Best Rock Vocal Performance. You would have thought that he maybe would have won more, but that's not how the Grammys worked back then. Well, isn't that the year Lionel Richie beat him out? I'd have to go back and check, but that sounds right. Yes. <laughs> well, it's one of those things where you know, over time you see that some albums hold up, hold up and some don't, and this is definitely one that did. Well, and we know one that did. We know the rock stars never got their full due from the Grammys, especially in the '70s and the '80s. Uh, that's true. But Bruce was crossing over to pop, so uh, I mean, dancing at least dancing the dark one. So after the Grammys, Bruce and the band had some time off, and then they headed down to Australia, which were their first ever Australian dates, opening in Sydney on March 21st. Yes, and it looks to me like he he picked up exactly where he left off in Syracuse with with an extended Nebraska set and ending the main set with with racing in the street. Yeah, it does seem like he kept the Syracuse template for the first show in Sydney. Then they had an off night and Bruce actually made a guest appearance on that night. He played with Neil Young on Down by the River at the same venue that they were playing. So actually, now that I'm thinking about it, so Bruce played the first night they pulled the stage down, put in <laughs> Neil Young's stage, and then they had to put the stage back up. That seems a bit of crazy planning. But anyway, Bruce took the opportunity to play with Neil, and they did Down by the River before resuming the stand on the 23rd. Yeah, well, I got to assume that Neil Young booked the uh, booked the venue first, <laughs> and then they Bruce worked around him just to, because they they couldn't say no to Bruce. I would think so. <laughs> now, the interesting thing about these Australian shows, I got to say, I I don't think I've ever heard any of these shows from Australia. Are there are there tapes? There are tapes. I think there's one show that doesn't have one, and I forget which one that is. And I'm sure somebody will quickly point it out to me, but. There are tapes of the other shows, and the quality quality is not the best here, unfortunately. So it's if you haven't heard these, it's you know due, due to the quality issue and not due to a uh, availability. Yeah, that makes sense. I was just wondering. Now he did do five shows in Sydney. They mixed the show set up a little bit. 
He did wreck on the highway the final night. Now, Rosalita did come back into the set in the encores. It, it seems like it was a pretty good stand. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of documentation, as we were just saying. Yeah, but it looks like, but as you as you were saying, it does look like a very good set. I mean, he, he was still doing the extending the extended Nebraska's uh series in there and he, like you said he pulled out wreck on the highway and moved, had rosalita and the encores and follow that dream so he was definitely switching things up over the course of the of the five nights he did also on the fifth night in sydney which is interesting it looks like the second set ended with backstreets not racing in the streets and then jungle land was the first encore so that- that is interesting. I wonder if that's really what happened, or if there's, if we're, or if we're missing, if a tape is missing something. Well, Bruce Bay says that the 31 song set list is confirmed by a fan present at all five shows. Oh, okay. I, I, I don't know. I mean, of course, that's just one fan's recollection. We'll assume that's accurate. <laughs> well, there are some pretty obsessive fans of Bruce Springsteen. I don't know if you ever picked up on that. And well, we, and we tend to remember that kind of crap 35 is, years later. <laughs> that is true. Now, also on that final night in Sydney, Santa Claus, Wooly Bully, My Father's House. So th- he did give them a good cross-section of the material that was being played in the States. Yes, yes. And it looked like this was a, the point where he started putting in the river as kind of a segue out of the Nebraska set before he got back to to more of the rock, his rock music. One last note about Sydney: Thunder Road returned to its traditional spot at the end of the first set for the final two shows, and that would continue pretty much for the rest of the Born in USA tour. Uh, yes, it would. From there, they went to Brisbane. And the set list has some interesting things, if accurate. Yeah, Bruce Bay says the set list is based on several recollections from people there, but there are some things in the set list. One, notably, Born to Run in the Encores was followed by Who'll Stop the Rain. Now, I'm not saying it didn't happen, but that is certainly unusual. So without confirmation, it, it seems questionable. Yeah, it's, what, it's because it never happened at any other show, and Bruce is... Bruce is a a creature of habit, as we know, and it would be very surprising for it just to happen this one time. Especially in the middle uh, where it went, Born to Run, Who'll Stop the Rain, Ramrod. But I guess that's (laughs) something we're just not going to be able to answer. It's lost to history. Uh, Yes, unless 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 Bruce's people have it on some kind of, you know, soundboard audio, but I'm not holding my breath for that either. It would seem unlikely. <laughs> yeah, not even, a, not even a cassette, I'm sure. Well, if you're talking about cassette or something, that's definitely yeah, what, what I'm talking about. We know their multi-tracks are quite limited from this tour based on what Serling has said. Yes. And from Brisbane, they moved on, on to Melbourne for, for two shows to close out the Australian tour. And the first night in Melbourne, unfortunately, had the last performance to date anyway. We're always always hoping for the future of Johnny Bye Bye, and then the last performance of I'm a Rocker until uh, until the Rising Tour. Yeah, not played again until Denver, September 22nd, 2002. And so after after Melbourne, they moved on to Japan for their first and and only tour of of that country uh, ever. And um, if I remember correctly, and I think I read it in Dave Marsh's book, that they had a curfew for these shows, no? That's what I believe I read as well. Okay, and unfortunately, the first casualty seems to have been like really an extended Nebraska set. Now, before you you know go uh, train spotting on me, yes, he, Johnny Ninety Nine and Atlantic City seem to have been played on multiple occasions, but other songs, specifically "Shut Out the Light," "Johnny Bye Bye," and and I think I think he didn't do did he do Reason to Believe down once, there once once okay once, so yeah. on, on April thirteenth okay so it got it got an outing but. 
really that was the uh, that was the last time we were actually I guess Australia was the last time there was that extended Nebraska set that so many of us love. Yeah, it's interesting to see these truncated sets and that was had to be done because of the curfew, as you mentioned. But uh, the other thing that's notable about this is that the E Street Band, other than one stop on the Amnesty Tour, has never returned to Japan, which really is kind of mind-boggling. You would have just thought that, especially as Bruce has gotten uh, more worldly in recent years with the touring, that they would have returned to Japan, and they haven't. It's uh, really a mystery. Yeah, especially since they have been back to Australia several times, and one would think that they at least try to hit Tokyo, but I guess the logistics just didn't didn't work out. So he did the five shows in Tokyo, and then he went to Kyoto for one night, incredibly gorgeous city, and <laughs> then after Kyoto to two shows in Osaka, where on the first night they played the first version of Backstreets in Japan, and according to Bruce Base, there was an abbreviated Sad Eyes in the middle, and also the Detroit medley made an appearance in that show. Well, if we're going to talk about setless shifts, I think the biggest one for me, anyway, was the fact that that Rosalita returned to the set to as the set closer in, in Tokyo as well. Well, again, it, I don't know how well the racing with the story and, and the long coda would have played compared to something like Rosalita. And Rosalita was a much bigger hit than racing in the street. So I imagine the fans probably knew it better there. Okay, I'm not sure I would call it a hit, though. I mean, not like it hit the top 40 in Japan, did it? No, but I think especially because the Rosalita video had been introduced early in 84. Oh, okay. All right. And, point, and that got point. so much airplay on MTV. And I do believe that MTV did have an offshoot in Japan, or I have no doubt the Rosalita video was played in Japan. Okay. So, so I guess if they went to a Springsteen concert in Japan, they probably would have been familiar with at least some of the stuff they would play that was played on the Japanese version of, of MTV. So, okay, that makes sense. But, but going back to, to what I was saying though, is that we, we made, certainly made a big deal out of Rosalita not being played in, in October and the shift to the racing in the street as, as the closing song of the second set. But really, starting in Japan there, or starting back in, in, in Tokyo, the Rosalita became the set closer basically through the end of the European tour. Yeah. Before I became a, you know, a setless train spotter, I certainly had the feeling that, oh no, Rosalita wasn't played at all after October 19th. Which, but that's not the case, and it was back to being an, an every nighter in, in Europe in 1985. Of course, you're correct. And after leaving Japan, the E Street Band would be on to Europe. But prior to getting there, they took a break. <laughs> and on May 13th, a pretty notable event happens in Bruce's life. And of course, that is he marries Julianne Phillips in Oregon. Yes. Uh, Lake Oswego probably had never seen the paparazzi descend upon them as they did, or probably since, since that weekend in, in, in May. I would think that's true. Now, some of the people listening to us obviously became fans later. To explain what was going on in 1985 with Bruce, this was basically like a Kardashian getting married. <laughs> I'm not sure if it was that big, or at least his booty wasn't that big. But uh, but yeah, it was a pretty big deal. I, it certainly made was on the front pages of, of newspapers ac across the country at that point, maybe even oh. around the world. Yeah, it was it was worldwide news. And what was the line that millions of hearts are breaking along the Jersey Shore? Uh, yeah, you can hear hearts breaking up and down the Jersey Shore tonight. I, f I forget who wrote that and or, or what publication it was, but pretty memorable line if I can remember it, you know, 30 some odd years later. 
you know, we mentioned this because Bruce was so big at this point. By the time we got to May and they were leaving for Europe, the he was just on a rise that would culminate when he returned to the United States for the stadium tour that it, it's really hard to understand even in 2020. I don't know how many artists really get that big anymore. I guess maybe Adele, but I don't, was Adele as big in the last couple of years as say Bruce or Michael Jackson or Prince was in 1985? I don't think so. Uh, it's really difficult right now to have any kind of crossover appeal and, and Bruce, Bruce was able to really reach across the pop and rock uh, audiences considerably, obviously. Whereas right right now, it's just too hard to. There's just too much stuff going on right now to have to have any one artist be that big of an influence. Yeah, that's the thing. Right now, everything is sort of fragmented. You don't get that kind of huge crossover. Even though Bruce really never crossed over into, say, the African-American audience in the United States, his overall audience was, as you say, pop and rock. And it was it was massive. I mean, it was it was really an event in 1985. It really was. And uh, I mean, of course, that's how I got into him. So I can't really complain about it now. That's for sure. There was nothing like that year where it seemed like everyone was just talking about Bruce and and everyone wanted to go see the shows as the tickets started going on sale for the Meadowlands and it all stadiums and all the other stadiums. Yes. (laughs) And it really started on June 1st, which is what we'll get to now. The start of the European tour, they opened at Slane Castle in Ireland. And if anyone's ever seen the images from this show, just a massive, massive crowd. I think it was like 90 or 100,000 people, all general admission on the hill outside the castle. <laughs> it really quite a scene. Yeah, there were a bunch of clips in the Born to Run video that they that they released uh, back in 86 or so that included footage from Slane Castle. So it seemed pretty overwhelming. And Bruce was overwhelmed. He, he, he talked in his biography that he was a little unnerved by the by how large the audience was and there are even some arguments between him and Landau backstage, and you know, I, I I don't blame him having being responsible for all those people, especially the people down in front where you can see the crowd moving in waves. That's just would have been that's just intimidating to anybody, I would think. Yeah, it was it's just a really crazy scene, and you and you think about it now because of course the technology is different in 2020. In 1985. And we'll talk about this more when we get to the United States, because I saw shows outside. The screens, obviously, were nowhere near what they are today. And the sound was totally out of sync with those scenes. If you were part of the 100,000 people all the way up on that hill, a mile from the stage, you were getting the sound on a really delayed basis. It was it was quite crazy, but it was just such an event and, and so important for people that they be there. And, you know, they turned out. Yeah. Well, I guess, and all those people learned, especially those in the in the back of the of the venues, that you learn that that light moves quicker than sound through air. So you got a nice little physics lesson in addition to seeing Bruce in concert. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you from experience in 1985 when you were, and at other shows after 1985 in the 80s, when you were in Giant Stadium, say, and you were towards the back of the venue, even in the 100s, and and you would be like, what is going on here? It was It was actually, it, it made it a little hard to enjoy the show, but at the time you were so amped up. Of course, now a lot of these problems are solved because if you look at the screens even Bruce is using, they're much higher quality and and the sound system is a higher quality. Uh, of course, a band like U2, they can make a stadium feel much smaller with what they're doing. Oh, so wow. it's, it's, it's just 
putting yourself back into the context of 1985, as I like to say, it was it was really a singular experience and and a communal experience. Yes, yes, it was definitely when even now when I listen to recordings from that tour and I hear the crowd sing along on Hungry Heart, it's you know I know it's one of these songs that we've heard a thousand times and. We'll hear it. We'll probably hear it another thousand times, but it still is. It's quite. I don't want to say spine tingling, but it's it's a special moment when you get all you know fifty, seventy, hundred thousand voices singing as one. Oh yeah, and you didn't even need to wait that far into the show every night. Bruce would come out, and there'd be that massive cheer when he'd count into "Born in the USA." Now that was really spine tingling. Yeah, and then uh, that's uh, that's one thing I really miss about, or I really regret about missing that tour. Not that I. Well, it's not like I was offered tickets or anything. I was all of 14, and my parents and, and I were vacationing on the other coast when he played the East Coast, but um, or played D.C., rather. But the, that feeling, the that first, the first, the count-in, and then the first drum beat from Max and the synthesizer, I just want to feel it washing over me as I absorbed it. Oh, it was a real deal. Now, let's talk about the set list here the first night, because except for one song, When I Grow Up to Be a Man, which he played for the Beach Boys cover, except for that song, he sets up a template here that he really does use pretty much for the rest of the tour. Yeah, he's pretty much found he's pretty he's found his set list now. That's good. That's that he's going to stick with that he feels works in a in a stadium or in or large venues and. And it's one he stuck with for the rest of the year. I, there are some there are some changes or yeah. some songs well, he would dropped come Rosalita in. in the states. Drop Rosalita. He added "Stand on It." Seeds would come later, but it's pretty much with within three or four songs. That's pretty much the set that he stuck with for. I mean, through through Los Angeles in October. Yeah, I think he just had a set that he found that worked for him. And unlike the past where he would mix it up from night to night in these large venues, I think he just went with it. Another thing to point out, of course, at least in Europe, he was not playing more than one or two nights in all these places until he gets to London. Yeah, gone were the were the multi-night, the real multi-night stands that he played in the States in, in the fall and, and the summer. So he was only pl- only playing one or two shows. You, you were going to get the one or two, the, the standard set list with the with the changes. The other thing is he was playing some new markets, like on June 8th, he plays Gothenburg for the first time, a set of two shows, and of course, he has had a love affair with Gothenburg ever since. <laughs> well, yeah, and that was the the stadium breaker on Twist and Shell, where they really, they were rocking so hard and the fans were so into it that they actually broke some of the, the concrete pillars that were the stadium foundation. So <laughs> it's, that is so ludicrous if you think about it. And, it, and it's been it's been a running joke ever since. But fortunately, they they have fixed the stadium, and Bruce played there, and I guess he's played there on the Rising Tour. He played there certainly. Well, in 2012, we have the we have the Gothenburg release from from just a couple of months ago. After Gothenburg, they moved through the Netherlands. They went to Frankfurt and Munich, and then on June 21st, another big first for Bruce. They played San Siro in Milan, another venue that he's had a love affair with ever since. <laughs> yeah, Bruce. I mean, Bruce's mother has Italian roots, so he they really bonded very quickly at the sh- at at that show. And actually, Backstreet's uh, website had a pretty extensive retrospective look at that uh, not too long ago. Actually, I guess it was on the anniversary, June twenty first, where they really talked about how they bonded and and the way that 
that impression, that relationship has lasted all the way through through 2016, which was the last time they played Milan. I think I also just read that that stadium is being torn down. I think I read that too, yeah. And that's well, going to be a disappointment. That's too bad. I actually never saw a show in Italy, which uh, would be cool. Yeah, I, yeah, I saw shows in Barcelona in '99, but maybe I'm I, later on. I was like, hmm, maybe I should have gone to Italy instead. But no. <laughs> next time, right? Now there, there was a good bootleg of the June 21st, 1985 show, right? Yes, yes, there was one a long time ago. I think it was called Fantastico Bruce, and then there was a, a new tape, or at least an upgrade of of that existing recording that Crystal Cat released within the last five, six years or so, that it really, the sound really pops out at you, and you can really feel the audience's love for for Bruce and vice versa. It'll be interesting to see if they have anything from the European leg for the Archive series. It sounds like maybe they don't, based on what Serling has said, but fingers crossed, because (laughs) it would be good if this was represented. Yeah, we something needs to be represented from that from that leg of the tour. As I mean, even though we said that the set lists were all pretty similar through the end of the tour, including the U.S. leg, there's something a little bit different about the the non English speaking audiences who really come out come out for Bruce and and he brings it for them. Yeah, it's a feel to the crowd. I think it's not so much about the set list in that case. No, not at all. Moving on from Milan, they played four shows in France, including two in Paris. Yes, and we actually have a, an excellent video of the first night in Paris on the from June 29th. There was a it surfaced in 2007. It was pro shot and low generation, maybe even from the master, and everything was just so sharp and really gave us a gave us a good look at what what they were doing at that time. Totally. And if anyone in the audience has never seen that, I think it's on YouTube, right? I'm sure it is, unless Bruce's lawyers have contacted somebody. (laughs) Because if you want to see what was going on in Europe in 1985, that's really the best representation you're going to get. Yeah. And also, until they released the Born in the USA box with a complete video of one of the last two nights in L.A., this this may be the best look at it from the entire year. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess there is the Philly 85, but that's... That's pretty high. From what I remember, that's pretty high generation and not the sharpest sound. Yeah, I think was there a lower generation copy of that Philly show that came available more recently? Because I don't remember that one ever being as good as the Paris. But, uh, oh. I, you know, I'm not a big tracker of the bootleg video, so I may be off there. I'm not a big video guy either. But when there's something as great as, as that Paris show, I, I have to pay attention. Uh, there may have been a slight upgrade on the uh, on to the Philly video, but certainly nothing, nothing as good as Paris. Yeah, there's nothing on the level of Paris. And as I said, if people want to seek that one out, that's the one to watch, I would say. Oh, definitely. Definitely. So should we move on to England, the final four shows of the European leg? Oh, absolutely. We got some stuff to talk about here. <laughs> yeah, on the first show at Wembley, and, and the Wembley stand in general is just a huge stand in Bruce's career. Speaking of stuff for the Archive series, we don't know, again, if they have it. But the July 4th show in particular would be a perfect selection. Now, a lot of people were talking about that one because, of course, this past archive came out July 4th weekend, but it was obviously not July 4th, 1985 from Wembley. No, and uh, that's the kind of show that even if they didn't have maybe in, in perfect multi-track, that they, if they had it just in some kind of soundboard quality, two-track soundboard, that would be definitely welcomed, uh, welcomed by the fans. Yes. And there was a lot of big stuff going on in London. The first night, July 3rd, Bruce actually debuted a new song, a song that's very familiar to us now called Seeds. 
Right. It was something that apparently they had they had recorded in the studio over the between eighty two and eighty four, but he waited till now to debut it, and then it became a, an every nighter for the rest of the tour. Yes, and Steve also made an appearance in this show. In fact, all of the remaining England shows, and he played on the songs that he had generally been playing on: Two Hearts, Ramrod, and Twist and Shout. Do you love me? Right. Unfortunately, no, no, uh, no drift away here. But save, no. save that that special that specialness for for New Jersey <laughs> and Memphis. Oh, that's right. Yes, and Memphis. Forgot yeah, about that one. Exactly. And then the next show in London, July 4th, which, as I just mentioned, would be a perfect archive release. This is a show that I listened to many, many times. There was a very high quality recording almost immediately. I got it a few months later. And the show <laughs> opened with Independence Day uh, acoustic, which seemed like a really bold choice in a stadium that large. Of course, also a little ironic because, of course, it's our Independence Day from Britain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it took some guts for Bruce to come out, and I mean, not that he doesn't have the confidence, but I think it took a little extra, little extra cojones there to come out and play, uh, open the show with in front of seventy thousand plus fans with an uh, with an acoustic with an acoustic version of Independence Day. So, yeah, and to set the tone, and it set the tone for the rest of rest of the night. It was a, it was an ex- excellent show, as I'm sure you've you've heard many many times. Yes, this really was one of my favorites in the Independence Day rolling into Born in the USA with the full band was was pretty amazing, especially under those circumstances. And uh, as the show as the show was going to the encore, Stephen showed up again, as as we said, with uh, on Two Hearts and Ramrod Twist and Shout. So it was another party for uh, on stage in the encores. Oh, that show really was a big party. And I think people who were there <laughs> confirmed that there was one more show at Wembley and that was on the 6th of July. This actually, he threw in a couple of interesting choices here. He did Highway Patrolman, which was its only performance in Europe. And again, a bold choice out in a stadium as large as Wembley. And then in the encores, they did Street Fighting Man, which is the last performance of Street Fighting Man by the East Street Band to this date. Obviously, in London, a fitting tribute to the Stones, but unfortunate <laughs> that uh, it has never been played again. Yeah, it's one of the ones where you think it would have come up on one of the challenge the band sign collections and on the Working on a Dream tour. But really, was, how is it possible that that's never been on? I, you know, and I've never really seen anyone with a sign for that one. Well, that, and then that's probably the reason why he, he never played it. He, he would only pick the, the songs or pick the signs for the songs that uh, that people brought. That would really be a good one. And I think he, he would enjoy that one. So I maybe so, someone out so there so should too. make a sign for Street Fighting Man on the next tour. Uh. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Flynn doesn't want any more signs, but we'll <laughs> stick to the Born in the USA tour. Yes, yes. And then they uh, they finished out the European tour in Leeds on July 7th. And uh, hey, that included a really cool performance to follow that dream. Yeah. And Racing the Street was in that show as well. Uh, and as we mentioned, since he was in all the English shows, this one being no exception, Steve also guested in the encores. And the show concluded fittingly with Rockin' All Over the World. Yeah, that seems to be his song when he's either starting or ending a leg in Europe or or a tour. Have you ever yes. noticed that? At least in the in the modern era. Sad. In fact, in Kansas City 2008, which ended the Magic Tour, he closed with rocking all over the world. Right, and he opened the, sh- the last show in 2012 in, in Europe at the, the Helsinki Marathon yeah. with it as well. So he definitely uh, he walks the talk there. 
Yes, he certainly does. And with that, the European tour came to a close. They were heading back to America where he was on top of the world. <laughs> but but first, on July 13th, in the stadium they had just left, Wembley, Live Aid would take place. And, of course, there was an accompanying show in Philadelphia at JFK Stadium. Much to a lot of people's surprise, I think, Bruce did not make an appearance at Live Aid, as we all know. Yeah, and the t- topic seems to come up literally every year on several of the online discussion boards and there's really isn't really hasn't been a good answer <laughs> just i that, think he was just he must have been tired you know that's 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 what i'm thinking and he was probably just enjoying being home probably about the first time he had any time to really be in new jersey with julianne so i don't blame him for for not for not wanting to slept down the the highway from from Rumson down to I think Philly. knowing what they know today about the legendary nature of the show if he had to do it over again my guess is he'd do it. Yeah, I think the whole band would do it. I mean, you know, as you as you said, as you said several times here, he was on top of the world and here was basically almost every other musical legend on the planet participating in this concert and so he was kind of a not kind of, he was a, a pretty blatant or conspicuous absence yeah notable absence there you go i think in keeping really you know bruce at this point he was still reticent to do tv maybe uh the fact that the show was being broadcast worldwide factored into it it's hard to say but really 35 years later it does seem surprising he didn't do it yeah uh, i don't think we're good at we're getting a redo on that one anytime soon (laughs) no (laughs) as 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 cool as it would be i don't think it's happening Speak about days to relive, but that's a topic for another day. Uh, yeah, that was quite the day. But uh, then we got the the stadium leg kicks off in D.C. August fifth, nineteen eighty five. Right, but before but before then, we have to talk about the ticket sales. No. Oh, the ticket sales. <laughs> then they yeah. then basically when the when the when the RFK show went on sale, they like the north almost the entire Northeast uh, phone lines just came to a grinding halt. At the time, there was no announcement, if I recall. There were rumors on the radio tickets were going to go on sale. I don't think it was like today where they would be like at 10 a.m. on Saturday, the tickets are going on sale. I remember going to Forest Hills in New York when the second set of shows went on sale and there was a line. It must have been a mile long. And (laughs) I got on the line. I was with one of my buddies and we were there for hours and hours and hours and and we didn't even know for sure if the tickets were going on sale and then the sale started and it was moving so slow it was just complete hysteria i remember that that they were setting up uh what do you uh, saw saw horses or what do you call those things to keep people uh, in line? Well, crowd control. Yeah, crowd control measures. It was it was really thinking back on it now, and of course, as a fifteen year old, and and I was hadn't been doing a lot of this stuff. My parents were like, "Where are you going? You're gone for <laughs> hours." It really was a, a crazy, crazy time, and and there was it was truly hysteria. I, there's no other way to describe it. Yeah, and I guess. Was the was the DC show was it announced at the time that tickets would go on sale or was that more of a surprise thing like like the Jersey show? I don't remember because the truth of the matter is outside of New York, I didn't know anything. I mean, like <laughs> you know, I wanted to see the shows. Of course, as we described in the last episode, I had seen a show at the Meadowlands in 1984. The entire year, I was, di- and we knew he was coming back, and I was just dying 
so badly to see these shows. And then when there was such hysteria and it was hard getting tickets, I remember, I think, because it's around the time of my birthday, what happened was they announced, of course, the four New Jersey shows. And I think we got tickets for one show. Someone got me a ticket. And then my parents bought a ticket, I think from a broker for (laughs) another night so I could go with my friends for my birthday. And then- and then after that, they, uh, of course, added two shows because what happened was Bruce was trying to play Foxborough and the, <laughs> the town council up there or whoever wouldn't give him permission to play. So we got two more shows in Giant Stadium. Those are the shows I waited online for. Ah, OK, well, I was because I was wondering because of the what I heard, remember about the D.C. show basically crashing the phone lines across the Northeast that they realized that maybe they should do it a little bit more ambushy and not really. And do more ticket sales at at outlets rather than over the phone. That sounds very possible. As I say, I was not really experienced at getting contra tickets. I had I, gone to two shows at that point. Well, it was probably a few more than that at the, by the time we got to the summer of 85. But I was by no means a ticket expert. And we were just sort of wandering around following people <laughs> through the <laughs> process. It's pretty funny to think about now. Oh, <laughs> because is... as, as you know, I, I run a tight ship when it comes to the ticket operation. Yes. And I, okay, okay, Hal, then I have to say this right now. Yeah. I have to say something. Yeah, go ahead. You know that episode of the Big Bang Theory when they're getting when they're trying to get tickets for uh, for Comic Con? Yeah. And, and Sheldon counts them down and then says go. Uh. That's you. Well, look, we've done that many, many times. There's, I can't deny the fact that uh, we've done that a lot. But anyway, let's get back to the board in the USA tour. Well, the DC show opened pretty much standard, but then included that that second ever performance of Man at the Top which, of course, wouldn't be played for another 28 years or something. Uh, but it was pretty much similar to what he was doing in, in Europe, he, except he dropped Rosalita in favor of Bobby Jean closing the show, or closing yeah. the main set, rather. Well, and the other thing about that Washington show, he did play Because Night that night, which sort of dropped away for a little while after that, and Pink Cadillac became a regular in that slot. And it was a great version of Pink Cadillac. Yeah, it seemed like Because the Night and Pink Caddy did, did, did trade up here and there, and and then, of course, Pink Cadillac and Growing Up would, would switch off here and there. So when, when I was first started collecting, I would definitely focus more on the shows with Pink Cadillac than, than Growing Up or Because the Night. There was not a lot of major changes from night to night on this leg of the tour. In Cleveland, he did tour premiere This Land is Your Land, and that would become a pretty regular part of the show from that point forward. Again, tied into the political aspects we talked about in the last episode. On a lighter note, he, he would... He started ending the shows with Sherry Darling instead of letting Twist and Shout close it, close it off. Yeah, that's right. I, I actually forgot about that now, but now I'm looking at it. And they they went through America. They, he went to Chicago. Every, every place, it was an event that's really indescribable. Uh, uh, you know, concerts these days, again, not to sound like, oh, it was better when we were kids, <laughs> but... It doesn't really, th- this level of hysteria doesn't really happen. I guess the, you know what it's, it's comparable to if you really, if, if you're trying to put into a modern context, I guess the, the, what's the name of that Korean pop band, BTS, something oh, like okay. that. Yeah. 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 That, that's the level of hysteria that was going on here. And, and Bruce's every move was covered and it was really something. And, and of course we talked about in the tunnel of love episodes about how he, I think intentionally downsized after this period. And as great as I'm sure it was, it was probably pretty overwhelming. 
Well, as we talked, as I mentioned, talking about Europe, the playing the large venues definitely unnerved, unnerved him, uh, at least to a certain extent. And I, I would like to think that by the time he got to uh, the U.S. in August, that he was more accustomed to, to that size of crowd. I would imagine he was accustomed to the size of the crowd, but I don't know. The coverage was was so immense and everything was being so focused on him. I could still see if that was making him a little uncomfortable. Yeah, and it seemed like um, each on each stop of the tour, there was always a preview. Bruce is coming tonight oh, and tomorrow it, night. Yeah, like I said, I mean, it was like the conquering hero coming to town. Yeah, and, uh, and then, that, of course, there was the big review after the show. And then oh, there was yeah. sometimes even a little... Thanks, Bruce, for two, for two for two special nights or four special nights or whatever it was. It, it really, it was amazing. Uh, then, then they went to Pittsburgh on August 11th. Now, this show, and I think you sent me this because this is a very, there's a famous episode at the beginning of this show, which is just so hysterical that the show starts without certain band members on stage. Yeah, Nils and Roy must have been playing a very intense game of, uh, of table tennis or, or ping pong. Because they uh, did not go out with the rest of the band when uh, when Bruce led them on led them on stage and they couldn't get Bruce's attention or the other band members couldn't get Bruce's attention anyway to say hey Bruce no you know these these two guys aren't here but he counted it anyway and from there, from that day forward well born was, in the USA is not going to work that well without Roy on stage <laughs> let's just true. put it that way <laughs> that's true but you know it's funny I went to listen to that recording. And I really didn't hear much of a difference. It might just uh, have been because the recording wasn't that good. It's not. It's it's okay. It's average, maybe even below average. And sometimes it takes some time to get the the, the micro the mics in place and all that kind of fun stuff. So I I never really heard the lack of lack of Roy on that one. What I love is that Bruce Base notes that after that incident, they took a head count every night before every show, and that has continued to this day. <laughs> well, this episode actually came came to light in that 92 Musician article, no? I don't think, I mean, it certainly wasn't part of the, the legend until then. And I remember the, the author of the piece said that, you know, Bruce told the story joking to, to, the, to the 92 band members. But then uh, when he talked to some of the more of the longtime crew guys, that they kind of shuddered and, you know, and how and how pissed off Bruce was when that happened. And as you know, I think what they said was how many Bruce came backstage at the, at the end of the first set and said, how many how many fingers am I holding up? How high can you count? And so he, he scared some people when that happened. Well, you would think if you're leading a band, you'd like the band members on stage when you start the show. Uh, that that's seems, true. That, that, that seems like a pretty good rule to have. But that's anyway. true. I think, well, I think what they were doing was contrasting the way Bruce was laughing about the story in 92 compared to how livid and pissed off right. he, he well, was in 85 when it actually happened. Well, we know he's very intense. <laughs> Especially then. I think he has loosened up since. But back then, man, hmm. Would not want to been no, that road manager. After that Pittsburgh show, they moved on to Philly, where it was, and they were playing in the Northeast. It was the middle of August. It was really freaking hot. Let's just say that. Yeah, it's, I remember hearing that the Philly shows were just, I mean, it was hot and humid. It was a typical kind of August day. And but hey, they Bruce likes playing in that weather for some strange reason. So he had a good time. On the 15th in Philly, Jersey Girl was played for the first time in 1985. I think we should also, in terms of the set list, just speaking out, we're about to get to New Jersey where I did see four of the six shows, but a couple of <laughs> songs that really stood out for me 
uh, trapped on this leg was great every night and cover me dancing in the dark to open the second set. Uh, The crowd got so into that. And of course he was still pulling up a girl on stage at the end of dancing every night, just really big shows and everything about them, the crowd, the noise level, the, the sound of the band was so big. And I have very fond memories of course, I think we would agree that these shows really aren't among the best of his career. No, 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 they're not. But there was just something going on in that summer of 1985. Maybe it was just me being 16 and getting to see a bunch of shows for the first time. But it just it sticks out to me as such an amazing time period. Yeah, I, I would actually think that your your age did did matter. Uh, did play a huge role in the way that you that you look that you look back upon those that time. True and. So then on August 18th, Bruce returned to New Jersey for the first of the six shows. And let's just say there was some really big anticipation. Well, I remember reading in the in Backstreet's magazine when they were discussing the live set, they were talking about every show that that they source songs from. And they called the giant stadium run there the Super Bowl of Springsteen. Oh and and I you know, I can't think of a better of a better description. That just says says it all right there. I think that's an apt comparison. It really was like the Super Bowl. That's how big an event it was. And not only was it the Super Bowl, I feel like it was your team was guaranteed a win in the Super Bowl. That's how that's how excited you were. I felt like it was a win for me. Yes, <laughs> finally getting to be back there. And I don't know how the other fans felt. The fans that had been around for, especially since 75 or even before, I think a lot of them didn't really appreciate the fact that Bruce was now playing in these cavernous buildings. And and as we've said, of course, a stadium is not the best place to see a rock concert, but it was, it was still very special. And if maybe if I had been 35, I would have been like, this is too big. And I understand that we say that now sometimes, but (laughs) really to capture the magic and, and 1985, as we're saying in in the pop world was a very singular time with all this going on between Prince and Bruce and the Michael Jackson victory tour was going on. There was just, it, it, it really was, was a monster summer and, and it was just fun to be a part of. Oh, yes, I, I can imagine. I mean, I remember I was excited to read the review of the RFK show when I was in Yosemite national park in California and I, I knew they would have it. And I was anxious to get to the, get to the newsstand to check out what they said about it. I get it. And unfortunately, I didn't see the second and third shows. But looking at the set list, uh, the most notable thing was Used Cars was played on H21, 1985. And that's a show that we know they have as a potential archive release because it was used as a source for Live 75 to 85. Ah, yes. One of the. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of of surprising that none of the Giant Stadium shows have, have been released as part of that series just yet. But, uh, I mean, you know, can't complain about the, the three they have. Well, I think one of the things is, especially on these stadium shows, the set lists are fairly similar. Now, the one that they did release from L.A., there were a couple of nuggets in the encores because by then he had loosened up a little. But here at this point in the tour, this, the shows are very, very similar from night to night. Yeah, well, but still, these shows are they are different than what he did in L.A. They're different than what he had done the previous summer. And... So it's not like we're saying release three of them. We're just saying release one. I think it's pretty safe to say they're going to. It's got to be coming at some point. (laughs) 
and you know, well, I guess we'll, we'll talk about live 75, 85 in a little while and compare that yeah. to the live series. So we'll save that, save another, another topic of discussion for that. After, after the four shows in Jersey, they went to Toronto and then that was when the Foxborough shows think about this in Foxborough, Bruce, who's basically conquering the world, wants to play two shows. They tell him he can't come. So Boston doesn't get shows on this Born in the USA outdoor stadium tour. It's pretty pretty crazy that he skipped Boston, but it, their loss was our gain because he wound up playing two additional shows in New Jersey. They were scheduled for August 30th and August 31st, but on August 30th, there was a terrible rainstorm and the show wound up being postponed. Well, going back to, to Boston, I don't think the Boston city, the actual city limits, got a Springsteen show on, on this tour at all. I, they didn't because like he, uh, he, he played, played Worcester. Yeah, right. He played Worcester in '84. So, so Boston got doubly screwed there. I mean, it, not that Foxborough is in the city limits of of Boston, but well, one enough. of the things to keep in mind about stadiums in Boston at the time, they did not have concerts at that point in Fenway Park, and I don't <laughs> know what stadium he could have played in the city proper. No, that's true. But he also didn't play the the, the Boston Garden Arena, so which was kind of surprising as well. Now, these two shows at Giant Stadium, these were really, as good as the first four shows were, these two shows were were really amazing. The first night, well, what became the first night, August 31st, Steve made another guest appearance, and the show ended, much to our glee, with the world premiere of Stand On It. Oh, very cool. I mean, were you familiar with the song? I guess... Very glory... familiar with it, okay, yes. Okay, so it, the it, Glory Day so... single had, co- had come out in, what, early August? Late uh, July, yeah. even? Yeah, something like that. So, yeah. So, okay. So, you had time to to acclimate yourself to it. Yes. And Grown Up was also played that night, which we loved with the long story with Jim the Dancing Bear. So, that was a really great show. And the other thing that strikes me from that night that I remember, we sat in the upper level at Giant Stadium about a third of the way back. We felt so far away. <laughs> So you didn't have any decent seats back then, huh? Oh, no, we certainly had not. I had never been anywhere near close to the stage. At the next show on September 1st, the rescheduled show, we actually had, I'd say, decent seats. We were in the first level probably about half the way back, and those were tickets we got on line that day in Forest Hills. Oh, okay. So you were getting closer. Yeah, we were very excited to be where we were that night, and, and it was a really good show. Bruce came out, he called it the Sunday Night Special, and he played Darkness, which we had not seen on the shows that I had attended so far, but had been played, of course. And a surprise performance of Fire in the second set, which was the only performance, I believe, of Fire the entire year. I believe you're right. At least of the, at least it was the last one of the of the stadium run. Yes, and then the show ended with Bruce doing his little treat for New Jersey as he was leaving and not coming back with Santa Claus is coming to town. Oh, uh, yeah. That looks like quite the encore because he did Jersey Girl between Twist and Shout and, and Sherry Darling. So that it was an extra bonus for the for the Sunday night crowd. And then the send everybody home with Crazy Bosses Christmas in September. Was that was that that one or was that only in 84 in, in, the, in Philadelphia? I think that may have been the year before. This was okay. the one he termed the Sunday night special. Okay. And right. it was it was it was it was a really great night. And, and for us, when we left. Again, you know, so young, we didn't know when we were going to see Bruce again, but we had been so happy to have this experience because 
you know, I saw one show in 84, of course, and then here I got to see four shows, which just seemed unimaginable. And it was <laughs> it was really a fabulous summer. And then it was Bye Bye New Jersey. We were airborne and they uh, they left Jersey. They went up. They went up to Michigan, uh, I guess, right outside uh, Detroit, where it's the only performance appropriately enough of Detroit medley of the of the 85 stadium leg. Then they went to Indianapolis. Had two shows in Miami, and by this point, Stand On It was actually the standard show closer. Yeah, the, he did start making some changes as the leg went on. The, it, the set had been so static in many ways, but I think he got a little bit more adventurous. They they got to Dallas. He also added in Traveling Band there after Stand On It in the encores. Well, yes, and that was in, but that was in response to a, to that guy throwing his fake leg on stage <laughs> oh i remember that story yeah well who throws an artificial leg on stage you would think god forbid you had an artificial leg you'd want to hold on to it uh, that's what i would think too but some guy was just really in the moment and he threw it on stage and boom 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 747 coming out of the sky well i don't understand the connection between the i, I don't know the either, leg and traveling band but well <laughs> we'll leave that <laughs> and try and figure it out later <laughs> True, and then, but then they, after leaving Dallas, they went to Oakland, and now, now we're really entering the uh, the final stretch of the tour. This is the place where there starts to be some significant changes for real. The first night in Oakland, he does Stolen Car. That that seems totally random based on the shows we had just seen in Jersey a couple of weeks earlier. Yes, and it looks interesting in the in the placement because he would he open the second set with the Four Rockers, Cover Me, Dancing, Hungry Heart, Cadillac Ranch. Then he would slow it down with something like Downbound Train or No Surrender. But here he did Downbound Train, then Stolen Car, and then I'm on Fire. So that's quite a stretch of, of slow stuff. So he, he so props to the, to the audience for having respect for that. And then he challenged the audience in Oakland some more on the second night where Highway Patrolmen and used cars were played in the middle of the first set before Trapped. And that's uh, something that didn't happen anywhere in the stadiums. One of those songs maybe popped up, but both back-to-back in a stadium. That uh, I, Was that because his parents were there? Could that explain that? I, I don't know. I don't know, to be honest with you. But I, it's definitely more, has that more of a the extended Nebraska set feel that we had talked about the, the year earlier. Yes, it does. And I see on Bruce base that Bruce announced during the show we're going to do some different stuff tonight. Maybe that explains it. Maybe he was just getting a little bored. I thought maybe because of the thematic elements, especially of used cars, his parents could have been there because, of course, they live nearby, right? Yes, they live in Northern California. Yeah, that's, that's surprising. And, but of course, when he says we'll do some different stuff and they really only do two songs that are different, you kind of feel short changed on that. But. Well, he, but there were more changes from the first night. He did do Darkness in place of Atlantic City, which was a normal switch. Okay. At that point. Okay. And also Grown Up was in for Pink Cadillac. So for the right. stadium tour, that was, oh, and he also did Can't, Can't Help Falling in Love instead of This Land is Your Land. So for two shows on the stadium tour, that's actually quite a number of changes. Yes, it is. But the, uh, at the same time, they were pretty sta- relatively standard changes as I think they almost... There were several similar changes when he went to Denver over the, over the two nights there. Yes, and Denver also had another postponement. They were supposed to play September 22nd and September 23rd. Of course, the 23rd is his birthday, but the 22nd, it was it was snowing. So they had to <laughs> delay the show two nights. And then the, the second night in Denver, again, he, where he gets a little bit more adventurous in the encores, High School Confidential is played. Yeah, that's uh, he kind of. I guess he medleyed it up with uh, with the, the with traveling band. So that must have been. A, so that's a really cool, really cool pairing. 
again, you're right. There were some changes that second night because because night, which was not played regularly on the stadium tour, was played the second night in Denver. Darlington County was played as the third song of the night in place of out in the street and used cars made another appearance. So again, uh, he, he definitely got a little bit looser as the end of the leg approached. Well, and that's something that he actually has done in the in the reunion era, certainly. Whereas he comes to the end of of a tour, he kind of gets a I don't know if it's a second second wind or it's just the fact that the finish line is in sight, so he has a bit more energy to to start pulling out more unusual stuff or not. But it's something it's it's interesting to note that he did it there, and then he really didn't do it again until uh, you know like two thousand or something. And with that, they arrived in Los Angeles for four final shows, capping off the largest tour of his career, the 927 show in L.A. The first night, of course, is an archive release. It had the debut of War. It also had the debut, the live debut of Janie Don't You Lose Heart. And it's it's all around a great show. Oh, yes. that's. I think we talked about that one before in that. It's like you're hearing it for the first time. We've, we certainly have had a lot of audience recordings or listened to a lot of audience recordings from the 85 tour, but until we got something that was basically in perfect quality, it's, it's hard to, to really see how great it really was. Yeah, I think more than perhaps any of the other archive releases, this one caught me a little off guard, and it really, again, shows the what was going on in this summer. And it's funny because it's... It has more of an evolved set list, or I guess, it, or at least the set list had evolved a little bit more with the inclusion of War and Janie and, you know, and Stan on it and the encores as well. So, and of course, the the story prior to the river was certainly something that had been evolving all tour long. Yes. And just to point out, the war, needless to say, becomes the first single of the massive box that he would release a year later after the tour ended. Yes, yes, he made it. It's funny how the song that he just he just pulled out for the last four four, four shows of the tour ended up being the the lead single. Phenomenal cover, really, uh, one of his better ones. Yes, and I really like like the version of Nine Twenty Seven better than the the Nine Thirty version, which was part of the box, just because it has more of the good gods and hoo-hahs and however well, else you want to it, say the 930 <laughs> the 930 version was part of the box plus some studio augmentation uh, augmentation is that the word you're going to go with <laughs> yes that's what we'll go with <laughs> okay <laughs> so and the 930 show which of course they do have because it was used for the box and eventually could be an archive release d- ended with rocking all over the world and then they arrived on the final night of the born in the usa tour a, a definitely a big night for Bruce and the band. And the, the set list was a little mixed up from what he had been doing, but the sound check, they actually sound checked according to Bruce base. I don't want to go home and blind by the light, but unfortunately neither one of them made it into the show. Yeah. Either one of those would have made a, would have made a considerable change in the, in this, in the field of show and in, in the, in the set list, but he did return back to kind of uh, the earlier part of the tour with, with no surrender, acoustic, obviously, and then growing up into Rosalita to close the main set. And also Prove It All Night was back in the first set because Glory Days was moved and Prove It All Night had not been played at all on the U.S. leg. Yeah, and it's kind of it's unfortunate in some, in some ways that the Glory Days didn't have the story, the baseball story at, at this last show, but at the same time, it, 
it was the it was the perfect tour closer because these were really his glory days. Oh yeah, well you couldn't have a more fitting ending to this tour than that. <laughs> no way. Not at all. Not at all. And that was and tears were in people's eyes on that stage when that song was being played. Was it real? Were they really? Uh, oh yeah, I think so. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Because it didn't. Uh... Well, think of what they had been through in 1984, 1985. The, the difference between say the river tour and the born USA tour in terms of the size of the tour and the intensity of the coverage and all of that, as you say, it was his glory days. And of course he'd never return to that level of hysteria again, I think as uh, by design, as we've said before. Yes. By choice. I mean, he certainly could have done stadium shows in in 88 in the U S but he, he declined to go in that direction and instead, you know, went in the other way. Although I will say, I don't know if you can re- ever recreate this. I mean, if he had come out, even if he had done a Born in the USA part two in 1987 or 1988, I'm sure the album would have been huge. But I don't think you could really ever plan to recreate what took place in 1984 and 85. And they, of course, they didn't plan what happened. It was all organic. It just took off. They had a feeling, I think, when they recorded the song Born in the USA, that they had just gotten lightning in a bottle, and it just took a while. I mean, obviously, it took another two years to release the album, and but they knew it was going to explode. They knew it was going to be big, but they probably didn't know it was going to be that big. Yeah, but if you think about it, think about the argument between Landau and Bruce that he doesn't have a <laughs> single for the record. Really, it's dancing. What if dancing hadn't been written after that argument? Would any of this have happened in the same way? Of course, we're never going to know the answer to that question. But I do think it's very possible the year would have been a lot different. Yeah, well, we can certainly go down a rabbit hole of, of alternative histories. And actually, uh, in 94, I guess it was, Backstreet's, did, Backstreet's magazine did have an alternative history of, of what happened in 84 and 85. And it certainly... It was a lot darker than what than what actually happened. Oh, I'll have to go back and read that. I don't remember that. Well, like it was a much darker album, and they even had uh, in tone anyway. It was I think it was even called Murder Incorporated. And Steve doesn't leave the band, and they go out and they have they have some issues. They don't get the the rave reviews that that happened in reality, and and then they uh, they had a, a bootleg surface called Born in the USA that was the album and. People debated, or in this alternative history, debated about whether this more pop-oriented album would have would have been better or, or not. Well, and of course, we talked about that in our third episode when we went through the Born in the USA sessions. There's no doubt that, say, if Dancing in the Dark had been left off and Murder Incorporated had been on, people would have been like, oh my God, there's this incredible outtake, Dancing in the Dark. That's just the nature of a fandom, I think. Uh, but- yes, it is. It's, it's, it's the forbidden or it's the, al- or it's the alternative alternate routes that yes that always make it interesting for us and when they stepped off the stage that night they went off into the night and 1986 was a very quiet year for bruce now he did well, compa- well comparatively speaking anyway. yeah he did do two shows at the pony with most of the east street band one at a benefit for the 3m plant that was in trouble and freehold and then uh just i think randomly in march on the second they did a short set just, I think, for fun. Yeah, I guess he probably wanted to keep the band in shape, keep them playing every couple of months, just to just to keep everybody on their toes. Other than that, the only other appearance of the year that Bruce made was, of course, the legendary bridge benefit in October. And by then, they had worked 
pretty heavily on what became Live 75 to 85. And of course, that was released on November 10th, 1986. At the time, the biggest live album ever. <laughs> yes. And that to me, that was always the de facto live release from the tour. And I guess we'll go, we can go ahead and talk about it. And Wait, what I do was, you mean the de facto live release? Oh, just because the last the last disc is all USA. It's all all from that summer and or from the, from the Born USA tour. And then they made the the drum sound uniform throughout the set so that the drums that Max was playing or seemed to be playing in 84 and 85 were basically there in 78 as well and that just that just sounds weird now. Well, as I referred to when we were talking about war, there was a lot of what we like to call the studio trickery. And again, uh, we've made this point before. Back in 1986, that was what people did with live albums. It's not like Bruce and his team were doing something different. Live albums were constructed taking the tapes from the live shows and then augmenting them in the studios. Everyone did it. Right. Well, and you, your first instinct is to think, oh, we're, they're going to fix some bum notes here and there. But they ended up doing a lot more than that. Yeah, the Live 75 to 85, as I like to call it, is Live Plus. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. But we bring it up and we went into 1986 just to sort of put the exclamation point on the Born in the USA period because really Live 75 to 85 is the final piece of that puzzle. Yes, it is. When you, uh, I guess some members of the band said when they finished that show in LA in, in October of 85 that they felt like they had finished something. And and then this box set kind of it's a summary of those of those ten years. And it was almost like he was closing that that chapter to move on to the next, which yeah. is, which is exactly what he did. That is what he did. And if you want to hear more about that, you can listen to our three episodes on Tunnel of Love and and the tour. Uh, really, I think an interesting period in Bruce's career where he tried to downsize a little bit and change things up. And he was very successful. And of course, from there, the E Street Band wound up being dismissed. And we know the rest of the history. Yes. Well, I kind of call it the, the Born in the USA hangover, where in 88, he tried moving people around on stage. And then, and then he tried dropping some songs and adding the horns, but none of that really worked. And then he tried another band entirely, and that really didn't seem to work. So he had to finally just strip down to just himself to finally get over that that kind of that hangover so that he could tour with the band again in 99. Yeah, that's a really good point that you make there. So and with that, I think that concludes our Born in the USA discussion for now. At yes, some point, does. we'll have to take a look at the record. <laughs> yeah, we've done the sessions and we've done the tour, but we haven't done the actual album. Well, it does seem a little obvious. <laughs> That is a good point. That's and what else can point. really we say about the Born in the USA record that hasn't already been said? Oh, uh, that is too true. That is true. The, the sessions were certainly we could have more interesting, interesting discussion about rather than the album that, you know, 30 million people bought. And with that, I think we can bring this episode to an end. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new spectacular episode, I hope. <laughs> we'll be fun, whatever it is. We're, we're working on that right now. Yes, so at, let's finish with our usual little bit of business. None But the Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. Please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, whether it's Apple, Spotify, or one of the other major ones. And you can find us on Twitter at NBTB Podcast. And our website is nonebutthebravepodcast.com. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flo McLean saying thank you for listening, and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. 
We'll be seeing you. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.